You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello, and thank you for joining us for the October 21st, 2022 reading of the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. On today's program, How to Make and Keep Friends in Adulthood, from the New York Times. And Do You Really Need That Treatment? from Consumer Reports on Health. Plus, The Power of Paxlovid, from the New York Times. And more, time permitting. Here's our first report. How to Make and Keep Friends in Adulthood. A friendship expert shares strategies for finding connection in a lonely, disconnected world. By Katherine Pearson, from the New York Times. In July, Marissa Franco went on a solo vacation to Mexico. But by the time she flew back to Washington, D.C., 10 days later, she'd formed an entirely new group of friends. As a psychologist who studies friendship, Dr. Franco has a leg up on most of us when it comes to forging connections, and she leaned heavily on the strategies she learned researching her new book, Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends. Dr. Franco assumed, for instance, that people would like her. And she reminded herself that people in transition, like those who've recently moved, gone through a breakup, or who are traveling, tend to be more open to making new friends. Buoyed by that knowledge, she struck up a conversation with a fellow traveler at a cafe whom she overheard speaking English. Dr. Franco invited him to a get-together for people looking to practice speaking Spanish that she had heard about on meetup.com. At the language event, I met someone else, made the same assumptions, and we exchanged numbers, she recalled. I invited them to a Luca Libra wrestling match, and they came. This is to say, people are actually really open to friendship, she said. Even so, Dr. Franco knows that making friends in adulthood does not always feel so simple or easy, and that may be one reason why friendship is in decline. In 1990, only 3% of Americans said they had no close friends. In 2021, nearly 12% said the same. The United States is in the grips of a loneliness crisis that predates the COVID pandemic. Dr. Franco's book acknowledges those headwinds while also offering practical advice for making new friends and deepening existing relationships. She spoke to the New York Times about some simple best practices to keep in mind, and this is going to be in question and answer format. Question. Much of your work centers on changing our scripts around friendship. What are some misconceptions you'd like to see disappear? Answer. One is that platonic love is somehow less important or meaningful than romantic love. We have this idea that people who have friendship at the center of their relationships are unhappy or unfulfilled. It's something I used to believe myself. I thought romantic love was the only love that would make me whole. I wrote platonic because I wanted to level that hierarchy a little bit. Another misconception is that friendship happens organically. But research has shown that people who think friendship happens organically, based on luck, are lonelier. You really have to try and put yourself out there. Question. Is that why you believe that assuming people like you is so important? Answer. According to the risk regulation theory, we decide how much to invest in a relationship based on how likely we think we are to get rejected. 
So one of the big tips I share is that if you try to connect with someone, you are much less likely to be rejected than you think. And yes, you should assume people like you. That is based on research into the liking gap, the idea that when strangers interact, they're more liked by the other person than they assume. There is also something called the acceptance prophecy. When people assume that others like them, they become warmer, friendlier, and more open. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. I never used to be much of a mindset person until I got into the research, but your mindset really matters. Question. Still, putting yourself out there can feel nerve-wracking. Any advice? Answer. I suggest joining something that meets regularly over time. So instead of going to a networking event, look for a professional development group, for example. Don't go to a book lecture. Look for a book club. That capitalizes on something called the mere exposure effect, or our tendency to like people more when they are familiar to us. The mere exposure effect also means that you should expect that it is going to feel uncomfortable when you first interact with people. You are going to feel wary. That doesn't mean you should duck out. It means you are right where you need to be. Stay at it for a little while longer, and things will change. Question. You also believe that it is critical to show and tell your friends how much you like them. Why is that? Answer: Because we tend to like people who we believe like us. I used to go into groups and try to make friends by being smart. That was my thing. But when I read the research, I realized that the quality people most appreciate in a friend is ego support, which is basically someone who makes them feel like they matter. The more you can show people that you like and value them, the better. Research shows that just texting a friend can be more meaningful than people tend to think. Question: At the same time, you are very clear that people shouldn't blame themselves if they feel like they don't have enough friends. Why does it feel so hard to make those kinds of connections? Answer: I want people to understand that they are much more typical if they don't have friendship all figured out. The data shows that so many people are lacking for community, and that is nothing to be ashamed about. I am trying to teach people how to swim upstream against a current that is pulling us all in the opposite direction, because loneliness is a societal issue that affects most of us. Our communities used to be built in, not sought after. Social media is a good example. It can be a tool for connection. But mostly, we use it to just lurk, which is related to increased loneliness and disconnection. That's not necessarily our fault, though. Social media is designed in a way so that we don't use it consciously. We tend to just stay on it mindlessly. There are just a lot of societal reasons people feel lonely. But I also believe we can hold both truths. Yes, this is a systemic issue, but there are things you can do as an individual to increase connection. Question. For those looking to make a new friend or strengthen their existing friendships, what is one easy tip you suggest they try today? Answer: I'd say to swipe through your contacts or look at who you were texting this time last year and reach out. You can say something simple like, "Hey, we haven't chatted in a while. I was just thinking about you. How are you?" Up next, do you really need that treatment? Spinal fusion and stenting are two surgeries that are performed too often. Here's what to know from Consumer Reports on Health: Stents for heart disease, spinal fusion for back pain, 
vena cava filters for blood clots, vertebroplasty for osteoporosis. A recent report from the Loan Institute, a nonprofit that focuses on improving healthcare, found that during the pandemic year of 2020, adults on Medicare received 106,474 overused or unnecessary surgeries or procedures, and those were near the top of the list. According to the Loan Institute, overuse or low-value care refers to medical services that offer little or no clinical benefit or are more likely to harm patients than to help them. It's very easy for doctors and patients to go down the path of doing a medical procedure because it seems like, in theory, it would be safer and better. But that's not always the case, says Vikas Saini, MD, a cardiologist and president of the Institute. More medical care isn't necessarily always better, especially for older adults, he says. Given this, it may be helpful to know more about overused procedures so that you can have productive conversations if your doctor recommends one. Here's a spotlight on the four previously mentioned. Stents for heart disease. What it is. A clogged artery is cleared and then propped open with a tiny stent that's left in place. This may be the right call after a heart attack or for people with a significant narrowing of the left main coronary artery, says David Marin, MD, Director of Preventive Cardiology at the Stanford University School of Medicine. When it's questionable, if you have coronary artery disease, plaque buildup in the walls of arteries that supply blood to the heart, but it's stable, you're unlikely to benefit. Stable means generally no chest pain or shortness of breath or only with exercise or stress, and it resolves with rest or medication. A study co-led by Marin found that people with moderate or severe but stable heart disease who took medication for it were no more at risk of a heart attack or death than those who had procedures like stenting. Note, If you have stable coronary artery disease and notice worsening symptoms, for example, they begin to occur even when you're at rest, it's reasonable to talk to your doctor about a stent, Saini says. Spinal fusion for chronic back pain. What it is. This surgery permanently connects two or more vertebrae in the spine using metal plates, rods, or screws to eliminate the motion between them that can cause pain. Spinal fusion is appropriate in situations such as a spinal fracture from a car accident, a severe bone infection, or a tumor that causes part of your spine to collapse, says Stephen Atlas, MD, MPH, director of the Primary Care Practice-Based Research and Quality Improvement Network at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. But generally, that's not when it's being done, he says. When it's questionable... Surgeons may advise spinal fusion for chronic lower back pain from severe arthritis or age-related wear from spinal discs, Atlas says. But studies suggest that in these circumstances, the procedure is no more effective than non-surgical approaches such as physical therapy, he notes. If you have severe chronic back pain and have used measures like PT for 6 to 12 months without much improvement, however, Consider asking your doctor about laminectomy, Atlas says. In that procedure, part or all of the vertebral bone is removed to enlarge the spinal canal and ease pressure on your spinal cord, discs, and nerves. Vena cava filters for clots. What it is. 
If you have blood clots in your legs, your doctor may advise that you have surgery to place a small filter in a vein, especially if a clot has traveled up to your lungs in the past. The goal is to prevent clots from making their way to your lungs, known as pulmonary embolism, or brain, where they could cause a stroke. This procedure might be necessary for people who can't tolerate traditional treatment, oral or injectable blood thinners. But that's the exception, not the norm, says Benud Bigdeli, MD, MS, a cardiologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. When it's questionable, there's no clear evidence that these filters are more effective than blood thinners, Bigdeli says. A review he co-authored, published in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology in 2017, concluded that while the filters do seem to reduce the risk of pulmonary embolisms, they don't lower clot-related death rates and can hike the chance that more leg blood clots will develop. Yet they're still often used. A study Big Delhi authored involving more than half a million people hospitalized for the embolisms found that about one in six people ages 65 or older received a vena cava filter. Vertebroplasty for osteoporosis. What it is. Osteoporosis heightens the risk of painful compression fractures, a bone break in the vertebrae. One way to treat them is vertebroplasty, where a surgeon injects special cement into the fractured area to support the spine and help to relieve pain. Some research suggests that it may offer benefits in the case of severe compression fractures, such as those significant enough to require opioid drugs to ease discomfort, says Joshua Hirsch, MD, chief of the Interventional Spine Service at Massachusetts General Hospital. When it's questionable... In most cases, vertebroplasty is no more effective at relieving compression fracture pain than a placebo, according to a 2018 Cochrane review of multiple studies. It also noted that vertebroplasty has the potential to cause side effects, such as spinal cord or nerve root compression, bone infection, and cement leaking into the bloodstream. That's why, in general, this procedure isn't recommended for mild to moderate pain that responds to pain relievers like acetaminophen, ibuprofen, or naproxen, as well as the nasal medication calcitonin, says Patrick Doherty, MD, Associate Professor of Clinical Neurosurgery at the Yale School of Medicine. To prevent future vertebral fractures if you have osteoporosis, he suggests that you get plenty of calcium and vitamin D, avoid smoking, limit alcohol, and when appropriate, take osteoporosis medication. And this information accompanies the article. Four questions to ask before any procedure. If your doctor suggests surgery, you may hesitate to ask many questions, but every medical procedure or surgery comes with risks, especially among older adults, says Vika Saini, MD, a cardiologist. There's too much at stake, Time, money, and most important, your health, not to voice concerns, he says. Here are questions he suggests and something to mention. Number one, if your parent had my condition, would you recommend this procedure? This forces your physician to take a moment and pause, Saini says. Two, what happens if I wait? If putting surgery off for six months to see if your issue resolves won't affect the outcome, Waiting may be reasonable. Three, what could go wrong if I have this procedure? 
You want to clearly know what the worst possible outcome could be, Saini says. Four, what alternatives are not quite as good but are still effective in my case? You want to know, for instance, if other appropriate options may be less invasive, cause fewer side effects, or require less healing time. Also, tell your doctor you plan to get a second opinion. There are a lot of gray areas in medicine, Saini says. And it's not an exact science. Your physician should welcome other colleagues' ideas and opinions, he says. Up next, the power of Paxlovid. The underuse of COVID treatments is leading to many needless deaths. By David Leonhardt from the New York Times, the morning newsletter. A worrisome pattern has emerged with Paxlovid and other drugs that reduce the severity of COVID. Many people who would benefit most are not receiving the treatments, likely causing hundreds of unnecessary deaths every day in the U.S. There seem to be two main explanations for the drugs under use. The first is that the public discussion of them has tended to focus on caveats and concerns rather than on the overwhelming evidence that they reduce the risk of hospitalization and death. The second explanation is that many Americans still do not take COVID seriously. Today's newsletter will dig into both issues. A large chunk of deaths are preventable right now with Paxlovid alone, Dr. Ashish Jha, the White House COVID response coordinator, told me. He predicted that if every American 50 and above with COVID received a course of either Paxlovid or a treatment known as monoclonal antibodies. Daily deaths might fall to about 50 per day from about 400 in recent months. Dr. Rebecca Wang, an infectious disease specialist at Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center, has said, Never really in recent history for a respiratory virus can I think of an antiviral medication being as effective, demonstrated in scientific literature, as what Paxlovid has shown, she said. Dr. Robert Wachter, the chair of the medicine department at the University of California, San Francisco, told me he thought the underuse of Paxlovid was already associated with thousands of preventable deaths in the U.S. The public doesn't seem to understand that the evidence around hospitalization and deaths is really powerful, Wachter said. Bad news bias. By now, you have surely heard about the downsides and shortcomings of Paxlovid. The drug can produce a metallic taste in the mouth. One member of my family described it as among the worst tastes she had ever experienced. Some research has also found that the drug might not cause a statistically significant reduction in hospitalization among younger adults. Most prominently, people who take Paxlovid can endure rebound COVID, as both President Biden and Jill Biden did. In which symptoms return after the five day course of pills has ended. All of this is true. It also does not change the big picture. COVID is a deadly virus, especially for older people, and Paxlovid reduces COVID's severity. It does so by inhibiting the virus's replication inside the human body, the same process that has made HIV treatments so effective. With Paxlovid, both randomized trials and data from electronic health records have pointed to its effectiveness. Some research finds an effect across all age groups, while other research finds one only among older patients. But that is not surprising. 
The COVID death rate for people under 50 is already so close to zero that reducing it in a statistically significant way is difficult. I think almost everybody benefits from Paxlovid, Ja said. For some people, the benefit is tiny. For others, the benefit is massive, he said. People who can't take Paxlovid because it interacts dangerously with another drug they're taking can usually take monoclonal antibodies. A recent analysis of about 568,000 patients by Epic Research found that 0.016% of COVID patients over 50 who received Paxlovid died. The death rate for patients who did not get the drug was more than four times higher at 0.070%. And yet, the EPIC data showed that only about 25% of patients eligible to receive Paxlovid actually did, even though the drug is widely available and free for patients. Perhaps the most shocking statistic about Paxlovid's underuse, and Ja used the word shocking when describing it to me, is that a smaller share of 80-year-olds with COVID in the U.S. is now receiving the drug than 45-year-olds with COVID, according to data he has seen. Many doctors are evidently worried about side effects or rebound cases among their most vulnerable patients. Even in rebound cases, however, symptoms tend to be milder than they would have been without Paxlovid. After Dr. Anthony Fauci, another White House advisor who's 81, contracted COVID in June and then took Paxlovid, he experienced a rebound and also believed that the drug kept him out of the hospital. Medicine is about weighing costs and benefits, Wachter said. The recommendation should be clear and unambiguous for people at high risk. The benefits of the drug outweigh the downsides, he said. Red COVID. When I last wrote about red COVID, the concentration of COVID deaths in conservative communities because of vaccine skepticism almost eight months ago, I explained why the partisan gap could eventually shrink. Republican communities might have built up more natural immunity through previous infections, and treatments like Paxlovid were becoming more widely available. This spring and summer, the gap did narrow somewhat, but it has begun growing again in the past two months, according to an analysis by my colleague Ashley Wu. One possible explanation is that Paxlovid take-up rates appear to be lower in Republican areas, even though they are the very places where the drug could do the most good, because of lower vaccination rates. Government data shows that of the 20 states with the least Paxlovid use between late August and late September, per 100 diagnosed cases of COVID, 18 were won by Donald Trump in 2020. The shunning of Paxlovid seems to be a part of a pattern in which Republican voters have wrongly dismissed COVID as little different from the flu. That mistake has had tragic consequences. A new study by three Yale University researchers found that the wide partisan gap in COVID deaths remained even after controlling for other factors, like age. Solutions Ja told me that the Biden administration was committed to increasing the use of Paxlovid and monoclonal antibodies nationwide. We are going to go after this problem hard, he said. We have got to fix it, and we've got to fix it in weeks, he said. What might make a difference? persuading more doctors of Paxlovid's benefits would probably have the biggest impact. Wachter thinks that accelerating research about rebound COVID, including whether a longer course of Paxlovid would help, could also increase use, given the fear around the issue. He added that he was surprised that government, 
academic and private researchers had still not learned more about what causes a rebound and how to prevent it. Up next, according to the new Dietary Guidelines for Americans, to get a healthy stamp from the FDA, cereals have to contain three-fourth ounces of whole grains and no more than one gram of saturated fat, 230 milligrams of sodium, and 2.5 grams of added sugars. Under these guidelines, believe it or not, raisin bran and cornflakes would be considered unhealthy. Thank you for joining us for the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.